going to Sundance for a couple of times and seeing the magic that was happening for young creators there and recognizing that it wasn't inclusive of people of color was an opportunity to say, let's bring what I know about career and about economic empowerment and about the power of storytelling to people who ought to be here who aren't. And so my life's work has been about understanding how these systems work and how to broaden the universe of people who are impacted. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the podcast, Born in June, Raised in April. Hi, my name is April Dinwiddie, and I host a podcast called Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World. As a transracially adopted person, I share insights and conversations with other folks in the community, and we deconstruct identity, relationships, and facing and embracing differences of race, culture, and class. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the fourth season of the Visible Voices podcast. I'm so glad to be bringing you today's episode where I'm in conversation with a friend from Brown University, Brixen Diamond. Brixen is currently a partner in the technology, media, telecommunications, and services practice of the leadership advisory firm, Spencer Stewart. He has a specific focus on supporting media clients and advising across the firm's Americas region on client-facing diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's a founding board member and chair of the Black House Foundation. This foundation provides pathways for Black multi-platform content creators. It helps them into career opportunities within film, television, and digital and emerging platforms. Brooks and I first met in sociology class. We had many social adventures together, and I think something that sticks with me profoundly is senior year, I was in a car accident. Now, I'm fine, and I was fine. However, that night, in the emergency department, in the waiting room, were a group of friends, and Brixen was one of those friends. Let's get to the conversation where I've asked Brixen to tell us more about Brixen. For the audience that has yet to get to know Brixen Diamond, walk us through a little bit of that history. Certainly. So it starts, if you start with my grandfather. So my grandfather uh, graduated from Hampton Institute in 1899. Uh, and so, you know, coming from a, a family of, of college-educated black folks dating back to the 19th century. Uh, so a pretty remarkable accomplishment there. My, my grandmother, subsequently, uh, was the first black graduate of the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy in 1922. Uh, and so they, she went to Norfolk to do a residency, met uh, my grandfather, 20 years, her senior college graduate, the year she was born, uh, married and became important leaders in the community. Uh, my grandfather was pastor of First Baptist Church in Berkeley, our neighborhood in Norfolk, uh, for 50 years. Uh, and so that, that he loomed so large in our family's lives that he was he died in January of 1971. I was born in July of 1971 and, and was adopted by my family later that year. And at two years old, I would talk to his portrait that hung in our living room. Uh, mind you, I was born, you know, months after his, his demise, but he was that much of a presence. So that was a very strong presence in my life and, a, and an example and, and, and a symbol. Uh, and then my godparents uh, were Ralph and Juanita Abernathy. And I love to say they weren't people who said we marched with Martin King Jr. They're people who said we think he's interesting. Let's bring him in to the Montgomery Improvement Association. Uh, and, and Uncle Ralph worked alongside King uh, for, for the, 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 the movement and after King's assassination led the movement 
and, and, and quite frankly, was a leader that people were like, eh, we prefer the other guy. Uh, and so got a great lesson in leadership of how do you uh, fight for the liberation of your people over a long period of time, uh, even when there is not so much appreciation for your contribution. And so, uh, you know, my father was a professor. My mother sold Mary Kay Cosmetics, which is how she met my godmother, Juanita Abernathy. Uh, those women were a force. So entrepreneurs and independent, educated black women in this deep South uh, and, and, a, and a roster of ministers who took their ministerial sort of seats as opportunities to impact the world in, in, in ways well beyond um, the, the pulpit's normal constraints. You mentioned being adopted. Um, can you explain what you mean? Yeah, I, somebody else gave birth to me and these people, the diamonds, t- uh, took legal custody and raised me. Uh, so uh, I know a little bit about my birth mother, um, but not her in fact. Uh, it's interesting. I was on a plane recently watching a documentary produced by a childhood friend, Marvin Arrington, about his father, who had been president of the city council in Atlanta for a long time, called Bowlegs. And uh, I got chills because I know I was conceived on the night of uh, Ali's first fight after being suspended over his protest of the war in Vietnam. And so to be able to see on screen on a, in the intimacy of a plane seat the night you were conceived... Uh, subsequently given up for adoption, and the, the Diamonds were my adopted parents. Do you know anything about your bio mom or your bio father? Bio mom was from Detroit, uh, was Atlanta for fashion school. Uh, it was interesting when I got my non-identifying information at age 21, the woman who uh, answered the phone actually was a woman who had uh, processed my adoption. Uh, and when I got the non-identifying information, uh, she uh, began every entry with a detailed summary of my mother, my birth mother's uh, attire. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, whatever sense of fashion I have, uh, humble brag, uh, uh, is clearly uh, both nature and nurture. Uh, but just from being in Detroit, her, her, her father worked at one of the you know, motor companies. She was in town. And, and so I know that about her, but not much beyond that. Yeah. So your adoptive parents, your godparents uh, were activists and community engagement people. Um, so clearly you have this in your upbringing. And where do you see your advocacy and your community engagement making a mark now? So it makes a mark across a number of spaces. And so certainly in higher education, having served on the board's uh, Brown University, uh, secondary world, Middlesex School, where I sent my, my nephew to, to prep school. Uh, but, but now at the board of the Cooper Union, uh, which is a totally different school from anything I've ever attended or been engaged in. So it's, a, it's a, just a different um, reality. Social justice and progressive movements overall. If you think about my work at Tides as the vice chair of the board of Tides, a, a $1.4 billion donor advised fund. Um, you know, I think as well uh, across the universe of spaces in which I work with the Black House, which puts me in the entertainment world uh, and media more broadly. Um, and then finally, I would say, uh, you know, really across philanthropy in terms of investment uh, universe, uh, having spent 15 years in the investment business and sitting on a number of investment committees, I'm able to, to, to both uh, steward uh, assets for organizations, but also create some more equity in how those assets are managed. Yeah. So I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive into that. So when you and I were in college together, I remember summer jobs, I believe, at Coca-Cola, uh, at least one. And, you know, your 
mainstream job job, I'll call it. You know, yes, in college, there was Coca-Cola. There was the Capital Group, the Executive Leadership Council, Big Answers, and now Spencer Stewart. So I've known you to have a business slash finance um, thread to your professional life. And um, I'd love you to go into any aspects of, of those positions and how that ties in overlaps, vector overlaps with the Black House. Certainly. I, I thought you were going somewhere else with that, that vector tie-in. I'm going to take it there first. But I, think it, I think it ties into my upbringing in Atlanta and understanding that, you know, quite frankly, Atlanta is a terribly segregated city still, uh, both in term, but at least in three levels, racially, economically, and by vintage. Right. So if you weren't from Atlanta in the 70s or 60s or 50s or 40s, you're sort of ignorant of a whole reality that exists in the town. Uh, One of my dear friends, uh, which results from my Brown engagement, is, you know, from Atlanta, but, you know, a New York proud resident. Uh, But we bonded and connected over our uh, similar experience in Atlanta. And all that to say that, you know, I had a very keen awareness, you know, living through the next phase of the civil rights movement. Of the, the the insistence on focused uh, work around economic justice and economic equality, and so all that career pursuit has been around creating economic justice, which I believe first begins at home. Uh, so you know, finding that that way to really unlock the levers of economic power, uh, and so that's been this sort of through line of my life. Uh, the economic empowerment piece, but also this notion of people who should have opportunity and access who just don't. My, my successes and my access have been very serendipitous. Uh, certainly lots of wishing, hoping, and working on my part, but uh, luck uh, it, it played a huge role in all that. So, so all those pieces are together to figure out how the, the levers of economic empowerment work. So you go to work at Coca-Cola, or Coca-Cola as we call it in Atlanta, uh, because it runs through the, through the streets uh, and that seems to be the nexus of power in Atlanta. Uh, and so I did two summers at Coca-Cola. Uh, and after that, I went to work at the Capital Group in L.A. because that was, you know, real money. Uh, $600 billion at the time. They managed $2.6 trillion today. Uh, so, you know, really understanding how money works in that regard. Uh, and, and so that, 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 that's where I was when I co-founded the Black House, which was this notion of the money isn't enough. The stories and the visuals are critically important. And those stories and visuals are, are what give people hope uh, and, and senses of what's possible, but also give others who hold the reins of power the, the ability to imagine people who sit, who sit in front of them in a different way. Right? The way we were interpreted and, and represented impacts how people perceive, accept, and promote us. And, and so going to Sundance for a couple of times and seeing the magic that was happening for young creators there and recognizing that it wasn't inclusive of people of color was an opportunity to say, let's bring uh, what I know about career and about economic empowerment and about the power of storytelling uh, to people who ought to be here who aren't. Uh, And so my life's work has been about understanding how these systems work uh, and, and how to broaden the universe of people who are impacted. Yeah. I have a Brooks and Diamond quote. I don't believe there are any more black creators than there used to be. I just think there are more pathways for their voices to be heard. Sundance's palette, the palette of the festival and the palette of the audiences have been refined in a way that makes appropriate room 
for all of these stories. I got smart. <laughs> He's a keeper, that one. He's a keeper. I think so. Yes, 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 yes. So, and related to what you just shared, um, you've also said that you're not a networker, you're a relationship collector. Tell the audience more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think networking is this notion of sort of collecting business cards and moving around the room as quickly and effectively as you can. Uh, by contrast, I, I, I am super nosy. Uh, my neighbors in my cul-de-sac uh, on Toll House Lane, uh, many of whom I am still in constant communication, uh, with whom I'm in constant communication, will tell you, I was just a nosy kid on the block. I didn't just want to know you. I was like, well, who are you? What? <laughs> it's, it's a funny story. I, I used to visit my aunt and uncle, my paternal aunt and uncle, on Evelyn Uncle Paul in Queens, New York, every summer. And, uh, they, were, and they lived in a, you know, a, a, you know, a modest townhouse, you know, three or four bedrooms and two baths. And, and you know, they were older and had one child at home, adult child. And, and there were neighbors down the street who lived in the same setup. But they had four kids, mother, father, and grandmother all living in the same house. Well, the mother one day, I, I was playing with the kids. And I didn't really love kids. I was playing with the kids one day and I said, well, how's your day going? <laughs> and she just loved that. And I became famous and fast friends with the family. And every summer I go and spend every, all my nights, except for the first and last night, down at their house with all those people in the same number of rooms. And I'm still in contact with them today. And I think that, that, that sort of nosy uh, six-year-old still persists. So I, I, I'm curious about what's going on in your life beyond your name, title, and, and, and coordinates. Uh, but, but, but that sort of kids persist in that sort of curiosity about people and that desire to stay connected. I, I think the other piece is, and, and probably other adopted kids feel the same way, that we have a particular strength and talent around connecting in to, to strangers, quite frankly, and to new people and to creating context and home in uh, lots of places. Yeah. And the work you do, uh, the business work you do, um, has been to help, correct me if I'm wrong, clients uh, and business partners see the value of diversity and not just diversity, but belonging, true belonging, where it's not just there are voices, but those voices are heard, welcomed, amplified, etc. You know, how do you approach this uh, the business case, making the business case for diversity for those that actually don't have it in their heart and in their brain to truly feel for it. Yeah, I'm a marketing guy, so I'm not going to go to the numbers, but there are extensive, you know, data that talk about the the, the, the sort of the impact of diversity. I think about it on a much much more um, philosophical level, which is the notion that if you think about a society that is uh, comprised mostly of people of diverse backgrounds. Most people in the society don't look like everybody else. Uh, if you think that is your baseline today or at some point in the future, and you think that those people who are the most homogeneous and the most traditionally in power can remain dominant over and in some ways suppressing this new majority, I would question the longevity of your hold on democracy. So put very simply, if people of color are the majority of people and they have the, the, the least amount of power, you got a problem. 
And so if you believe in democracy or idolize democracy, I feel like, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion should be top on your list of priorities uh, because you want to make sure that you are not just uh, avoiding some calamity that comes from unjust social systems, uh, but you also want to make sure that you are harnessing the best, brightest and most populous uh, group of folks in your in your community, country or or on your planet. Have you ever worked with someone and or had a client that you just couldn't convince? You know, I, so my job is to be an interpreter. It's not to it's not to necessarily convince um, of what is indisputable in terms of the numbers. Right. My job is to help them find a way that they can, with the most resonance, connect to the work that they're going to do. So, so my job is to say, standing still is not an option. How fast and how far you go on this spectrum, that's a choice. And I'm not here to judge you on what you choose. I'm just here to say you can't stand still. And if how far you want to go, I'm willing to work with you there. But I, I'm, I'm literally like, what do you, you know, this is the range of options. You can go two degrees above steady state because you got to keep you just got to keep moving or you can go you know 180 degrees in terms of another direction uh and a, and a, a more fulsome embrace of this work what's a way that people don't think about diversity that is actually an important aspect of diversity yeah so the two spaces i think about being a, a member of the lgbt community i i go first to transgender folks uh, if, if, if particularly black trans women as a, as a starting place, that's where I'm going to, I'm going to start. The other space that I'm going to go to quickly is the disability community, uh, for disabled folks. You know, where are there opportunities for us to make sure that representation, uh, understanding and full engagement is possible. So beyond race or gender or even sexuality or those pieces, I think about, you know, trans folks and, and disabled folks. Yeah. First and foremost. Yep. Uh, that's it's intersectional. Yeah. Once you get that, you get so many intersections. And so you can, you can, if, 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 and not just intersections, but if you are, if you are building accommodations for those folks and, and, and building uh, pathways in, you are likely to be considering so many other groups that, that are in a part of their complex and dynamic uh, identities, but also creating things that just benefit everybody else by virtue of the fact that they, they are humane and, and compassionate. Yeah. I was going to say, circling back to community engagement and advocacy, the black community and wealth and generational wealth. So some people may be surprised to learn that Chadwick Boseman, Prince, Aretha Franklin didn't have wills when they died. Or had too many. And uh, you were quoted in an article um, that says so many families lose their family access and ownership of land um, as well as other access to wealth. Can you walk the audience through that and how you try to educate people um, to take care of themselves? Yeah, I think the first thing is mortality is a hard conversation and a hard reality to face. Uh, so I, in a prior life, I was on the board of the National Hospice Foundation for nine years and chaired that board for two. Uh, my mother uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, my, my, my adopted mother, when I was 10, and she died when I was 12. 
and, and so I, I was somehow aware of what was going on throughout that. Not somehow. Someone t- people told me what was happening, which is unusual for adolescent and 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 and, um, and childhood grief strategy. Most times, the child is just lied to. Uh, and, and so in that regard, I think that that sort of inclination to lie is something that that harms our families because we don't get to say goodbye properly and we don't get to plan properly. And so I benefited greatly because my mother made us an estate plan. She had a will and she had insurance and she had Social Security and she made her intentions very clear and the structures very uh, plain. And so the work that I've been doing with a classmate from uh, from Harvard Business School is work around a, a, a software as a, as, as a service SaaS solution for estate planning that, that, that actually is a B2B model, a business to business model that allows for um, banks or investment firms or, you know, sororities or fraternities to offer this estate uh, solution, estate planning solution for their members, clients, et cetera, in a way that is interactive and, 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 and serial as opposed to a one time engagement. Uh, so particularly for black folks, finding a lawyer you can trust who makes a, you know, a structure that makes sense is both expensive and, and, and a little off-putting if you don't have that much trust in, in sort of institutions. And this hopes to, to really abate that by creating a more intimate engagement that is simpler uh, and, again, allows you to keep revisiting it to say what's changed in my life, whether it be the assets or the people, and how do I want uh, those assets to be distributed at, at my demise. I'll take a backtrack because I spent, as you said, years at the Capital Group Eleven of those years were in its wealth management division, and we'd say to our clients, you know, the only certainty about your marriage is that it will end. Uh, one of you will leave, one of you will die, but the only thing we know for certain is it will end. And what we want to do is plan today when you're most in love and most uh, uh, sort of aspirational about the terms on which you want that that marriage to end with this full loving heart today. Uh, the advantage in a divorce is that you get to then still choose. You don't have that advantage in a death. You don't get to express your love and your intentions uh, with your full heart if you don't plan for that in advance. I thanked you before we started for, in one of your talks, talking about uh, the HBO documentary, uh, King in the Wilderness. And um, how many people aren't aware of his intention regarding the war on poverty here in the United States. And I said to myself, self, um, I see what you're doing uh, as not exactly the same, but actually analogous to like you are trying to do work in this country with communities um, helping to provide access, helping to divide, provide wealth access. Um, and um, from the software product you just shared to your actually job job on a daily basis, um, to your philanthropic connections to Brown University, Harvard Business School, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot of fun, right? I think, you know, that war on poverty piece, Uncle Ralph uh, set up Resurrection, Resurrection City shortly after King's assassination. It was a disaster, right? So on the mall, countless tents on the mall, creating a city to just highlight the, 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 the sort of sh- strains of poverty. And then they had floods and sewage problems, and it was just crazy. Uh, but, you know, that work is real. 
And, and so we've exchanged holidays and statues for the reality and the, the, the strife of the civil rights movement in all its phases. And King in the Wilderness is so powerful. And Taylor Branch and I talked on that panel I did at Sundance with him about the fact that, that those last three years of King's life, no one talks about them. You know, he was morose and depressed and, and sort of obsessed with death and dark and, and not well-liked in America not least of all by black people, right? Um, you know, so both trying to figure out how to eradicate poverty, create wealth, but also trying to figure out how to live a more sort of realistic version of, of leadership uh, that allows for those warts and those frailties and those moments of exhaustion and despair. Because uh, I think denying them denies our humanity and 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 Again, where economic empowerment begins at home, I think saving humanity begins with one's own soul. I want to bring our final segment to focus our lens on the Black House Foundation. And this is where you often start. This story is what often starts your talks, but we're going to have it close this conversation. For audience members that haven't jumped on the website, read the show notes yet, um, and are just getting to know the Black House Foundation, um, can you walk us through your story? Um, of the Black House Foundation formation and where you are with it and your team, the board, today. Yep. So um, Black House was born from me going to Sundance for two years in a row, first with business school classmates. I was the only black person in the, the, the house that we rented and they had tickets laid out. Somebody's cousin, a business school classmate's cousin that stood in line and got the Utah tickets. Uh, and so they were like hustle and flow. Sounds like the one black guy in the house is going to see that. And so I did. Uh, it was, you know, Terrence Howard, Taraji P. Henson, uh, and, you know, Three Six Mafia doing the, the title song. So I saw it in a high school gymnasium on a, you know, tennis court late night one night. And it was just amazing. And I watched it sort of flourish from there uh, to its Academy Award winner for Best Song for its Hard Out Here for a Pimp. I was like, well, there's clearly space here. Uh, but when you walk outside, is a, a frozen tundra in more ways than one. Back the next year with a good friend, just hanging out, seeing movies, and couldn't find the black people. We were like, where are the black people? We just don't know where the black people are. We know, I mean, I knew people who were there, we just couldn't find them. Uh, and so we're sitting in this place called the Queer Lounge that Ellen Wong started years before. And this woman, Carolyn Shine, spoke to Ryan Tarpley and me and said, we should do this. For black people, it's queer lounge thing. It's a space, it's a community, it's an entry point. Uh, and so uh, Carol's a white woman who produces mostly black gay content at that time from San Diego. She went away, produced the second season of a TV show I invested in called Noah's Ark, came back in September. I was like, are we doing this thing? And from September to January, uh, September 2016 to January 2017, we stood up a board, got a fiscal sponsor, raised the money, uh, got a lease, and did 10 days of programming at Sundance. Uh, mostly parties that first year with just a couple of panels. The, the panelists were slightly outnumbered by the people in the audience. Um, but folks like Henry McGee, who ran home entertainment at HBO for 25 years, was a great champion and partner. Uh, people like Bob Johnson gave us money from BET Networks. Uh, the Gill Foundation from Tim Gill in Denver gave us money. I put a lot of money. And our first big party was for Our Stories Films, which was an imprint from Tracy Edmonds uh, um, under Bob Johnson's investment. 
And that first big party, we had everybody there. Eddie Murphy with a Fresh Off an Academy Award nomination for Dreamgirls. We had Tracy. We had Diddy. We had Nelly. We had Three Six Mafia. We had Timothy Hutton for some reason. Um, so we just became this hot spot. Uh, Cooper, who was a programmer, had a programming, said, every time I get a break, I come to the Black House because we named it that to be subtle uh, because no one bothers me. I was like, well, we need to change that. Everyone should be bothering you. So the idea was no velvet rope, just this hodgepodge mixture of people that could just be in community at the festival and understand how it works. And so that was year one. Year two, we came in. BET itself was a big sponsor because Bob had sold by then. Uh, And we did 10 days of programming again, but lots of panels this time. Lots of this is the aesthetic. This is the the milieu. Um, This is what you got to do to get in. Uh, And quite frankly, I would say it was a couple of years later that BET went into scripted programming, uh, having spent those days sort of roaming around the mountain uh, with our support and partnership. And, and so over subsequent years, 09, they had a, a recession uh, and a black president inaugurated. So I said not even the snow went to Sundance that year. In 2010, we totally started building back up and shifting the model around. In 2010, I also quit my job with the Capital Group. So after Sundance, I worked to expand Black House uh, as you know board chair, but also de facto executive director to include the uh, uh, Tribeca Film Festival, the Los Angeles Film Festival, which no longer exists, and the Toronto International Film Festival. Adapting our model from what became four days on the ground with panels, 14 hours a day, and, 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 and social engagement to whatever was most appropriate for the context of the festival at hand. Uh, so fast forward 15 years, uh, we have hired a full-time executive director, so I'm no longer serving that role on a volunteer basis. Uh, her name is Janine Glover, and Janine comes from having started in the mailroom at William Morris to being an agent, to being a manager, to being a, a stay-at-home mom who's now back in, in the career world uh, leading our ship. Uh, and we're moving our board from being a working board, where literally a board member who might have been perhaps building the original film strategy at Netflix was also working the door at our at our panels. Uh, not the highest and best use, but you know that was the spirit of the organization. So bringing on a new generation of board members to be more governance focused. Uh, I have a lot of experience in governance, um, but the cobbler's child has no shoes in most cases. And so really tightening it up for Black House so that our leader can run the organization and our board can set vision, strategy, and, and, and help execute on that. Yeah. And you, um, having seen what was happening in the LGBTQ community gathering, then created Black House, and now there are other communities that have followed your lead. Very proud of them. There is uh, Latinx House. Uh, there has been Latino Real, which we incubated. A Gold House is an organization that we supported um, in its incubation and, and, and initiation. Uh, so, so we've been a, a broad tent uh, throughout uh, our history. Uh, certainly black folks trying to make a way for black folks, but in the same way that black folks have made a way for every other uh, minority group in this country uh, throughout our history as a nation, uh, we've taken that, uh, that mantle on as, as a black house. So again, to have a, a broad tent, unapologetically black, um, um, but unyieldingly open, welcoming, and uh, excited to inspire and be inspired by other groups. Where is the art going beyond film? So it's, it's film, television, streaming, it's gaming, it's this metaverse 
idea. Uh, so it's been fun working with Sundance in particular because they've been so great at innovating and so great at being flexible about platform. And so it is storytelling. You know, the, the contracts in, in media uh, have this funny language about rights, uh, you know, in the U.S., extended territories, uh, you know, on this planet. It's not exactly it. And, and all universes now known and unknown. Right. <laughs> and so we, we want to be able to bring black content by virtue of that diverse content, storytelling and storytellers uh, to all universes known and unknown. Yeah. And as you've said, we, we may not be playing our cassette tapes or our DVDs anymore. So we have to stay ahead of the game and keep reinventing, inventing the art. Absolutely. And, yeah. and the form of telling it. So, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, there's a, a new exhibition of a, a, a film um, a project coming to LACMA uh, soon, but even more soon, MOCA has one. And so, you know, film and television and streaming and video art are all super vibrant uh, forms that will continue to evolve. And we just want to make sure that we are creating space both through attracting people to be present, but also pushing on the powers to be that, that allow for that presence and that thriving that we talked about at the very beginning. Yeah. For audience members who are, uh, who identify as being marginalized, uh, participating in marginalized groups and or those who don't identify as such, but want to create better belonging and for uh, members of their community, members of their working group, what's one way that you think we, they, can keep an openness to allowing voices, all voices in the room? It goes back to that vulnerability piece, right? I'm vulnerable and I am tapping into sort of my deepest thoughts and fears that leaves more room for you to do so, right? And so, so I, I, I again, lead with vulnerability. Um, it was interesting. We did a, we're doing a lot of work to innovate and, and pilot engagement uh, tools with our clients around, you know, searching for candidates broadly, but also prioritizing the voices and opportunities for diverse candidates. We did this assessment and this thing, and the feedback I got was that I was perhaps, and this was me, I was perhaps more confident of my inclusion uh, orientation than the, than the reality played out, <laughs> right? I thought I was better than I am. Uh, and the advice that was given to me by the person who was administering the results was, you know, instead of focusing on treating people how you want to be treated, focus on treating people how they want to be treated. And that, for me, was terribly powerful. Right. So if I'm vulnerable to know what I want and to be able to understand my confidences and insecurities around getting that, I'm able to then hopefully tap into what you want and where I can make your confidences stronger and your your doubts go away. The Risa wrap up. I'm going to start by thanking Brixen's team for helping to organize the conversation. I'd like to thank Brixen for joining me in conversation and for his candor, his honesty, his authenticity, and his explanation of how he likes to lead, how he is intentional with changing equity, inclusion, diversity, wealth, opportunity, and keeping that opportunity in the creator's hands. That's it for this week. 
See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.